Good afternoon. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and this is the Healthy Options Program here on WERU Community Radio. Today, we welcome back Dr. Beatrice Santier, our specialist on Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses. Why another program about tick-borne illnesses in the fall? Usually, we speak with Dr. Santier in the late spring as the weather warms. But should we assume that once the weather gets cold, we don't have to think about protecting ourselves from tick bites? We thought it would be a good idea to pose those questions to Dr. Zantier, especially as people are out in their yards starting to put their gardens to bed or going hiking or hunting in the woods of Maine. The answer may surprise you. So our guest today is Dr. Beatrice Santier, I'll get it right, B. She's an internist and pediatrician who lectures on Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders throughout Maine and, is, and also nationally. She does that to both professional and community groups. She's the active member of the Vector-Borne Disease Workgroup for the Maine CDC, as well as a member of the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society. Dr. Santier also has been part of the 2022 Federal Tick-Borne Disease Working Group. Welcome back to Healthy Options. Thanks so much, Rhonda. It's always good to be with you. So I guess the first question is... What do we know about ticks in the fall? What do we know about ticks in the winter as uh, as the weather gets cooler right here, I guess everywhere, but also in Maine? Well, I'm so, so glad that you um, asked me to, to come and talk with you about this because in fact, there are two peaks for Lyme disease. The, the major one we talk about um, in the spring when you know June, July, and August is a major peak. It's associated with when the nymphal tick is active. And the nymphal tick, as your listeners may recall, is about the size of a poppy seed. And that's a nymphal black-legged tick that we're specifically talking about. It's the adult ticks that are active now. And for the most part, if a person is encountering a tick this time of year, it's going to be a deer tick. You know, dog ticks are pretty well gone at this point. So there is a second peak of not only Lyme disease cases, but also anaplasma cases and Babesia cases that happens at this time of year in the fall. As we, um, uh, well, as we, you put it so nicely, we go hiking, we go hunting, and we put away our gardens, and these ticks are now active. As long as it's above freezing, um, tick, the black-legged tick can be active. So even on those surprise mild days we get in wintertime, ticks can become active in that time. They, they try to winter over in uh, the leaf litter. And once it snows, they become insulated. So snow doesn't kill them. Um, and they winter over. This year was kind of interesting in terms of tick activity because, you know, it was pretty dry through July, you know, everyone could try to take a deep breath and think, well, that'll change the tick submissions. But I talked with Griffin Dill from uh, the tick lab at the Maine Cooperative Extension of the University of Maine. And he indicated that tick, they got quite a surprise number of submissions through that dry July. And of course, it has become much wetter since then. So I, I think our tick population is probably um, in good stead and encounters are going to happen. 
So it's the wet weather. It's the wet weather that made it a little bit more prolific. Favorable. Yeah. More, um, more favorable. Yeah. Yeah. They ticks like it. The black-legged tick, for sure, um, prefers a moist environment. In the drier, hotter conditions, they tend to hide out again, in the leaf litter or the, the low foliage to try to um, avoid drying out. Their normal way of questing is to climb to the top of whatever vegetation there is, they are located in, and they reach out for that warm-blooded carbon dioxide emitting body that's walking by. Those are at least two of the things we know they're after. I'm sure that there are other things and try to latch on. So when it's hot and dry, they have to protect themselves and they can spend less of their um, energy questing. It doesn't kill them. It does not kill them. No. (laughs) (laughs) My goodness. So, um, well, let's, let's let all of that sink in for a moment. You know, um, there's just so many things that are happening as we get into our garden, we're dealing with the leaves. So that's where they, that's where they live. So it's almost a way that we, we actually even have to be more vigilant right now. I think that, I, I don't know about more vigilant, but you can't drop your guard yet. It's not time. And, you know, uh, so often people tell me stories of clearing brush and clearing leaves before they became ill. Um, so it, it's, it's really consequential. And you know what's really a point that I think people ought to know. Most people realize that um, most people realize that the rash of Lyme disease, an erythema migrans rash, is Lyme disease, and they should be treated. And they're very aware of that in the early part of the year, in the spring into summer. But even some medical professionals don't recognize that you can have an erythema migrans rash in the fall and that it means the same thing. It's Lyme disease. Um, The story of a child who was taken to their pediatrician who had treated Lyme disease before and with the rash of Lyme disease, and it was actually one of the target lesion appearing ones. So it was a classic rash, not the common rash, but a classic rash. And this individual was told that it can't be because it's not spring. And, you know, is that common? I'm sure that's not a common response, but it, it worries me that it's not only medical people who have to be aware but the, the general population needs to know that those rashes still count. And, um, and you can get Lyme more than once. That's the other thing that people need to remember. Um, just because you did have Lyme disease in the spring does not mean you cannot get it again in the fall. So it's, as always, it's complicated. What, what is the difference between a classic rash um, and a common one? What, what does Thanks. that mean? That's a great question. When I talk about the classic rash of Lyme disease, um, I talk about what is described as the bullseye rash. And so every, people who have heard of Lyme, you know, you, you see this bullseye appearance, a dark center, some clearing around it and another dark ring. 
And everybody knows that that's Lyme disease. That's classic. Unfortunately, that is not the most common appearance it takes. The most common appearance is a uniformly red expanding rash. And um, so don't wait till it has a bullseye appearance because uh, I think in um, a a pretty elegant study done uh, with uh, Dr. Smith at the MCRI, they they determined that 9% of the rashes they saw in this study, 9% were the classic bullseye rash and 59% were this uniformly red expanding rash. So when, when you see the rash, you have to get treated. That's it. That's it's yes. a clinical diagnosis. There it is. Exactly. And, and, and for good reasons, there are no tests that are going to prove it at that point. Um, early in the disease, uh, your antibody response to the infection takes time to develop. And so early in the disease, tests will likely be negative. Um, so there's no reason to test, um, no indication for it. You just get treated. So, so I want to talk about that for a minute, about uh, the, the idea of, of testing. I, I do um, have seen people who have a, a rash, the common rash, not yeah. the bullseye, and there uh, and some medical professionals are saying, well, we can't treat you until you get some blood tests. So what, what it, how long does it take for the antibodies to show up on a you test? Know, it takes two to eight weeks to develop an antibody response if you develop one. So not everyone does. Not everyone's antibodies are the same. Not everyone has the same pattern of antibody development, but two to eight weeks to develop an antibody response. And of course, this is a disease that is most treatable early in the infection. So we want to treat as soon as we can. And that, um, so it, you know, for all intents and purposes, we can, and we'll maybe do another show where there'll be other herbs and other, other kinds of ways in, and we definitely want to do that. But right at the beginning, what, what is recommended is, what is the course of, of and it is an antibiotic that we're talking about, if, if yeah. we're going that route. So what, what yeah. is the course that would be appropriate if it's you have a, a rash? That sounds good. It's a bacterial infection. And so uh, a good choice of antibiotic would be doxycycline. Um, And the duration of treatment that has been well studied and found to be effective is three weeks. Um, In the the literature, there's um, very little information about shorter courses than three weeks. And some of what is out there is actually um, poorly accomplished studies. You know, I don't think, I don't think investigators are trying to do bad studies, but sometimes um, the assumptions that are made are, are not good assumptions. In the early literature on Lyme disease, three weeks of an antibiotic, specifically doxycycline, was effective in 75 to 80% of individuals in terms of curing the infection, early Lyme disease, rash. Um, Of those who remained ill, interestingly enough, 
the investigators often retreated immediately and with another three weeks and people got better. So I look at three to six weeks as making a lot of sense. Shorter courses than that, um, looking at 10 days of doxycycline and only one study in the early literature did that. Um, and these are US studies because it's different there are differences between U.S. information and European information on this. One study looked at 10 days, and it appeared that the efficacy dropped to about 67%. So a significant fall in efficacy. Does that mean no one got better? No, of course not. Some people did. But we don't know necessarily who those people will be. So. So if you have a rash, then, then that's, that's the, uh, the course of, of treatment. Now, I know uh, I, people come into my office all the time and they say, well, yep, I had the tick bite. I did the two pills of doxy. I'm good. I'm good to go. Um, I know my knees hurt a little, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have Lyme, do I? No rash. No rash. So what do we know about that particular method? Well, you know, I, it's important for people to distinguish between tick bite and the rash of early Lyme disease. The rash of early Lyme disease needs full treatment. Two pills is inappropriate for someone who presents with a rash after tick bite. Someone who comes in who saw the tick, and you should know that very few people who get Lyme disease actually see the tick that fit them. Uh, it's fewer than 30%, maybe fewer than 15%. So it's a low number. But if you do see the tick and it's a black-legged tick and there's any evidence of feeding, then it's appropriate to consider treating with an antibiotic to prevent Lyme disease. You know, post-exposure prophylaxis we talk about. Um, the common practice of this single dose of two pills um, may not be the best idea. Um, I know it, there is only one American study, one U.S. study upon which it was based, and there were a few significant flaws in the study. One is uh, it did not follow long enough to determine that Lyme disease did not develop. It followed for six weeks. So really, that we know that later manifestations of Lyme disease can develop after that period. So what this study really was looking at was the prevention of the development of a rash at the site of a tick bite. Mm. Yeah, and now that it wasn't a bad idea, but it turns out that it was insufficient. Um, and in the study, there were at least three cases in which Lyme disease developed without a rash but they were not counted as cases because they didn't fit the definition that had been set up for the study. So it's complicated. The, the, the bottom line is a single dose of doxycycline given within 72 hours of uh, a tick attachment um, in the study was said to prevent the development of the rash about 87% of the time. But if you factor in the other information and look at that data, it becomes less clear that it's a good method. 
it, it's maybe 50% of the time. Now, that's not horrible, but what the downside is, is you have to know that if you prevent the development of the rash, you may also be preventing the development of the antibody response. So um, if you and your provider are both aware that you may yet develop Lyme disease and you may not develop any antibody response. So six weeks later, when you turn up sick and they do the blood test and they tell you it's negative, but you've had early but not curative antibiotics, that's a problem. Um, it's okay. If everybody realizes it and then goes on to treat you aggressively for Lyme disease, okay, but everybody needs to understand that caveat. I want to uh, talk about what a, um, a an appropriate prophylactic dose may be, but just we'll, we'll, we'll have a cliffhanger for just a moment. If you are just tuning in, this is the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're speaking with Dr. Beatrice Santier about ticks and tick-borne disease. Yes, the ticks are still around, even as the leaves are starting to fall and it gets cold. And yes, we still need to be aware of them and the tick diseases they can carry. So, the two pills, maybe not. What would be more appropriate as a prophylactic if you really wanted to go that route? You, you know, the hardest part of this is that there have been no studies to determine this. So we have to use um, the best information we have. And there are a few studies that looked at 10 days of antibiotics, but they failed to reach statistical significance. So, And we have no studies that look at you know, intermediate dosing or longer dosing. Um, and no studies really um, more recent than like 2000. So, so it's 22 years ago that anybody was particularly looking at this in the US. Um, the European studies don't help us because the bacteria most associated with the Lyme rash in Europe is um, unlikely or less likely to spread. So it, the data doesn't help us. What do you so, mean? The, the, the ticks are different in Europe? The ticks are different, and the agent of most Lyme disease is different. In Europe, it's Ixodes ricinus, not Ixodes scapularis, or Ixodes pacificus. And the bacteria, although they do transmit Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the most common agent of Lyme disease in the U.S., um, they also transmit Borrelia afzeli, which is most likely to cause a rash in European patients. And afzeli is less likely to spread through the body. It doesn't disseminate in the same um, way. And there's a third, actually, that they transmit, and that's uh, Borrelia garinii. So it's, a di it, we can't, it's not apples and apples comparison. We have to be cautious about using that literature. So using what we know and a mouse study that looked at um, long-acting doxycycline versus uh, single-dose doxycycline, um, a recommendation by um, the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society is for a risky bite. You should use three weeks of an antibiotic. So does that mean 10 days doesn't work? No, it doesn't mean that. We just don't know. I, I would love to see the studies done 
that look at shorter courses. Um, look, let's look at three days. Let's look at five days. Let's look at 10 days. Let's see if, um, and, and follow out long enough beyond that six week mark. Let's follow for six months. And it's not that I think these studies are easy to do. I don't, I think it's hard to do them. People can have a second tick bite. I mean, there, there are many things that make it difficult to do this research, but I think we don't have a solid answer. And so I think, um, it makes sense to me to treat longer than that three days, not longer than that one dose. One dose, definitely. I don't, I, I've looked at the literature to try to find um, a good comparator, and I just don't see it. So, so you know, there, there's so many ways to go here, so many questions that, that pop up here. Um, so... Are we also, first of all, are there other antibiotics? Because I have seen people who actually got treated much later, not right away. They missed that opportunity and have a lot of joint pain, a lot of fatigue, a lot of foggy thinking, and are have been given by some physicians doxy, but also a, a slew of other antibiotics. Is that common? Is that things that you're aware of, of in, in that world of antibiotic treatment? There are a number of antibiotics that are effective against Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, in fact, some of the studies that were done looking at um, treating tick bite were done using amoxicillin for 10 days. Some used doxycycline for some days. Some used tetracycline for 10 days. In um, the few treatment trials that exist, we've looked at ceftriaxone. We've looked at, um, oh my goodness, ceftin. We've looked at, um, again, tetracycline, doxycycline, amoxicillin with probenicid, which potentiates the action. So there are a number of antibiotics that could be effective to treat Lyme disease. I, I don't think it's just doxycycline. The beauty of doxycycline in the early infection and for tick bite is that doxycycline is also active against some of the other agents of infection that travel in the same ticks, like anaplasma, which is on the rise and active, you know, now, um, Borrelia myomotoi, which, um, is about to be called hard tick relapsing fever disease. Um, it used to just be Borrelia myomotoi disease. So name change. And we know that main ticks carry these infectors. So it's, it's not just Lyme. I, um, I, I'm, giving you a, a post for an article from, it's from 2011. It was very well done. It was used as a CME article. Uh, What's a CME? What's a CME? Oh, continuing medical education. It provided continuing education credits. And um, it describes an alternative approach to this single dose, especially in areas where anaplasma uh, might be an active agent. And, um, and the number of ticks infected with anaplasma has increased in the last year. And it, it, there's good evidence that things are getting worse, not better. So, what are the symptoms of ana anaplasmosis? Anaplasmosis, um, fever, usually a pretty high fever, headache, um, and bad headache. 
uh, aching muscles more than aching joints, um, fatigue, uh, can have elevated liver function tests on exam and sometimes a decreased white blood cell count. So in the face of an obvious infected appearance, a lower white blood cell count might be cause to worry. Um, If anaplasma is suspected, and we know that it can be transmitted, tick transmitted in less than 24 hours, um, unlike, not really unlike, Mm -hmm. it is less common for Borrelia burgdorferi to be transmitted in under 24 hours, but not impossible. Um, I've uncovered a number of articles that demonstrate that uh, occurrence, but more likely um, it takes longer, so uh, over 24, but not so for anaplasma. And if you, if one suspects anaplasmosis, it is recommended that you not wait for tests to tell you, but you treat and treat with doxycycline because it can be quite severe and in certain populations can be fatal. So, and there's also Bart, uh, Bartonella. Is that another co-infection or do we, are we seeing that? Bartonella is a really interesting case. Um, there is some evidence for tick transmission and yet it continues to be a, a disputed mode of transmission. But what I'll say about Bartonella is it's a, a really common infector and it's usual, you know, the usual one we talk about is cat scratch disease. And, and so for me, whether it's transmitted by the tick attachment or whether it's a different mode of transmission, if you have Bartonella either by itself or as a confounder with Lyme disease or other of the tick, known definite tick-borns, it needs to be addressed. Um, for a long time, it was said that it was a self-limited infection. Treat it or don't treat it, it goes away, except when it doesn't. <laughs> So it can be quite complicated and it can affect uh, the brain, the eyes, um, joints, skin, uh, the nervous system. It's It can be a very significant infection. Uh, oh, the heart. I mean, yeah. So... So, so these are are definitely uh, things to, to that are on the radar, and right. will be can be treated with the uh, with the the doxy. So, if we have a whole different conversation, if it's if if you don't get treated right away, and then it gets deeper into into the body, I think that's what we're really learning yeah. here. Yeah. Well, and and something that might be useful, you know, in in those early studies of early disease. They, try, they identified some factors that might um, require longer treatments of antibiotics even then. So failure of the treatment was associated with someone who was extremely ill at the time they presented with their illness, someone who had neurologic symptoms at the time of presentation, uh, someone with multiple EM rashes, because all of these things are indicators that the disease has spread. And finally, if you were still sick at the end of your treatment, um, I know this sounds like a no-brainer, probably meant you needed more antibiotics. So 
you know, we do have some guidance on people who are likely to need further treatment than, than a three-week course. So what I encourage folks is you need to follow up. This is not a get your prescription and you're done. Um, this is a follow-up, make sure you're well, have returned to your pre-illness wellness at the end of treatment. So, so yes, it's the follow-up because I have I have definitely um, encountered uh, clients and people who said, "Well, I got I, I I did you go back to the doctor? No. How are you feeling? Well, not so great. No. Yeah. So the follow-up is 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 really important. Um, there are a couple of things we're going to talk about how to protect yourself, but I all, there but there are two things that uh, that have been uh, on our minds and some people have asked about. Lyme vaccines, is that real? Is that happening? And if it is, does it cover the other co-infections that we're talking about? I'll answer the second question first. No, it does not cover anything but Lyme disease. So Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, I don't, yeah. The new vaccine that is being um, trialed in this country is... um, directed against outer surface protein A. And um, it has been modified so that the aspect of the vaccine that we believe was problematic in the first iteration some 22 years ago uh, is no longer um, part of the, the, the vaccine's structure. So it has uh, potential to be very helpful and it has been, you know, we're in stage three trials. So that means that it has been demonstrated to be effective at creating antibodies. It's been demonstrated to be safe to take. And now they're going to find out if that translates into protecting people from Lyme disease through tick bite. So I don't have a lot of information uh, about Northern Lights um deploying of this vaccine. Uh, And I I don't think the CDC has a lot of information about it either. So I guess the inquiry should go through Northern Light um, if someone wanted to try the vaccine. My worry is always that people will um, be vaccinated, have something that may very well work well against Borrelia burgdorferi, and then drop their guard about personal protection measures to save them from tick bites. I'm still waiting on the tick saliva vaccine. That hasn't materialized yet. Ooh, that's a good one. So a little business here. Um, If you have just joined us, this is the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're speaking with Dr. Beatrice Santier about ticks and tick-borne disease. Yes, the ticks are still around. They're around in the fall. They're around in the winter. They're around in the spring. They're around in the summer. All the seasons. Even as the leaves are starting to fall, yes. And yes, we need to be aware of them and the ticks diseases that they carry. And that's what we're talking about today. Um, Should you test the tick? And how accurate are those blood tests that we were talking about? We know that not at the beginning because it takes, what, two to six weeks for the uh, antibodies to even show up. But um, you were talking at the beginning of the program, if everyone was tuning in, and you mentioned someone up at the uh, the tick lab up in Orono who they're doing good work and you can send your tick in there. Is, is If it tests positive, 
yeah, does it means the tick has the disease. We don't right. know if you do, but that, still. You know, that's such an important point, though. It, you know, carrying it in the tick doesn't equal the tick having transmitted it. So it may or may not have um, a relationship for a patient. Should you send your tick? I am very much in favor of sending ticks into um, the cooperative extension because they'll identify the tick, they'll identify the degree of engorgement, and they will test the tick for several pathogens. They are they're always working to expand their, their repertoire, but they now test for uh, Borrelia burgdorferi, Anaplasma, Babesia, um, they do not yet test for Powassan. It will require a, a kind of a different level of um, lab security because Powassan is a virus. But Powassan is important because of the tick transmitted, the black-legged tick transmitted um, diseases, it can be transmitted within 15 minutes of the tick attachment. So if nothing else we talk about uh, tells you that you need to keep ticks off of you and prevent tick bites. I think Powassan virus might be one. Powassan is a neurologic virus. It attacks the central nervous system. Um, not everyone who gets it gets severely ill, but some people do. Well, so, we, we have heard of a number of deaths from it yeah. over the last few years. And I was looking at a, uh, a report from the Maine CDC, and it says that we are breaking records in several tick-borne diseases this year. And Powassan encephalitis is, they have four, they have something about four cases in 2022, which is yeah. a lot. That's the highest ever. And yeah, that's a little bit scary. There's nothing, no, no antiviral to treat that. No, yeah. We have no treatments. It's it's supportive care. And uh, there were two deaths early in the year. Uh, I think these second two um, cases have not um, have not been um, as severe. But it doesn't we don't know where they are. Are they in the hospital? Are they still impaired neurologically? We don't know any of that info. Wow. So so what do we do to protect ourselves? That is the key, isn't it? And you know, people are going to go out hunting and hiking and yes. you're in your backyard. What do we do now? Well, or always, always, now and always, but start out by being aware of your environment. You know, um, uh, many people who acquire uh, tick-borne diseases acquire them in their own backyards. So clear the leaf litter away from the active parts of your house. Um, keep your lawn mown short. Um, Ticks need moisture, so ground cover that provides moisture and cover for rodents promotes tick activity in your yard. It promotes rodent activity in your yard. Um, the white-footed mouse is a particular um, important host for, um, it's a reservoir host for Lyme bacteria and several of the other infectors. So you want to eliminate um, the opportunities in, in your immediate space. For your personal protection, um, light-colored clothes can be helpful because these are dark-colored ticks. You might identify them while you're outdoors. Um, tucking your clothing, shirt into pants, pants into socks, to create a barrier from the ground to your wrist. Brilliant. Spray your clothes or 
have your clothes treated with permethrin. Permethrin is a, an agent that doesn't so much repel as kill ticks and other um, insects. So permethrin treated clothing has been shown to reduce the attachment of ticks 73 times, 73 fold reduction. It, it absolutely works, but it only works if you're actually wearing them. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I know that sounds silly, but um, individuals tend to have a lot of difficulty making those changes in their activities in order to um, protect themselves. It was found that even if you just treated your shoes and socks, that you would have such a significant decrease in tick attachments. That 73-fold comes from shoes and socks. So we can do this. And then use EPA-approved repellents. You know, um, and I say EPA-registered because that tells you at this point that they've been studied and found to be both safe and effective. Uh, DEET is still the gold standard, but the, the really good news is we have other agents that are um, as effective. Uh, so if you have a particular dislike of DEET... Um, I, our audience I, is cringing now. I hear you all. I know. I feel your DEET pain. But you're not using the 100%, by the way. No. You, yeah. need you need at least 23%, probably less than 50%. It can have some impact on your clothes, but it has best impact when sprayed on skin. But if you're covered up, then the amount of exposed skin that you're talking about is limited. And from more than 65 years of safety and efficacy data, what we know is that people do not have trouble with this unless they have repeated high dose applications over a long period of time without washing it off in between. But, Wash it off. But there are other options. There we are, have yeah. the, yes. So let's talk about some of them. That's the, yeah. uh, um, uh, the keratin. The keratin, yes. Yep. And that's but 20%. 20% is the studied dose. And, um, but again, That's wash it off when you're done. But it's as effective as DEET and in some studies has been more effective. A little less harsh, maybe. We don't, we're not sure. But um, people with chemical sensitivities, and this is anecdote and not document. So I, I like to only provide you documented stuff, but this is anecdote. But people with chemical sensitivities seem to tolerate that much better than DEET. Um, IR3535 is another sort of semi-biologic, um, as effective as DEET. 15% was the studied dose, usually available now at 20%. Um, again, their claim to fame is you don't need to wash it off in between. Nah. Nutrition, simple thinker, wash it off. Um, Bio-Oud, how's that? It's a wild tomato um, formulation that has been studied and found to be effective. I bet it has another name, but I don't know. It's How do you spell that? Yeah. B-I-O-U-D. Bio-U-D. Okay. I don't know. Sounds it's like good. a Doctor Who character, yeah. Star Trek. Yeah. You know, so you can take a look. Um, 
I think Maine CDC and federal CDC actually have some nice pages about um, repellents, including some that are not synthetic. Well, they're all synthetic, but some that are naturally occurring. The up and coming one, and I don't know if it's been released yet. Okay, another great name, Newt Catone, N O O T K A. C-O-N-E, Nutcatone. It's a derivative of yellow Alaskan yellow cedar oil, um, also found in like citrus, grapefruit skin uh, oil. And it has been found to be safe and effective as a, as a repellent. Um, and it looks like it, it is also going to be um, not just for personal uh, protection, but possibly a property um, spray kind of uh additive so oh you mean around your house yeah Uh, on your and it's not affecting other insects we hope we don't know um the environment have that information the environmental impact obviously we have to think about these days forever chemicals and all of that but and also but if you're using the permethrin and you're covered and, and especially as it's getting cooler it's easier to be covered you want to be and, covered so. well oh and for hunters and folks yes um, who don't like the smell something that you ought to consider is you can get unscented formulations of these things we don't want you to alert your um prey to your presence and the unscented formulations work perfectly well um the other thing i offer to hunters is you know should you get your deer or or your moose or whatever animal you're going to um, to be hunting for, when you dress that animal out and you're hanging it in your yard, I suggest you put a tarp underneath that has permethrin sprayed on it so that any ticks that fall off will not just walk off into your yard and lay their eggs in the spring but will instead be trapped there and die. We used to tell folks you could um, like put a bucket of, you know, a, one of the big buckets of water so that you trap whatever's falling in, in a place where you can get these creatures and um, either send them in for testing or send them in for identification or, or destroy them. But at least, you know, the ticks, you, deer do not get Lyme disease. But ticks need deer in the in this whole reproductive cycle of, of their two year life cycle so that um, they feed on deer to repletion. They mate and then the female falls off and lays, you know, some 3000 eggs um, and and hopefully not in your yard because she was able to walk off and and. No, yeah, that was a question I had about whether if the cycle continues all year. So the deer are, are, are it's not a seasonal thing. It, the deer are the uh, one of the the crucial vectors for yeah. for this. Yeah, they're a critical element in the ticks' life cycle. They they don't do anything about Lyme disease itself. The white-footed mouse is much more. Um, uh, responsible for keeping Borrelia burgdorferi and Babesia and Anaplasma going in the environment, but um, but but deer are a necessary part of keeping ticks going. Just take a breath, take a moment, 
Okay. The little cocktail party on the deer, as I always say. That's it. The little umbrella drinks. They're really getting to know each other there, you know. Okay. Just take that for a moment. And if you just tuned in, by the way, we'll just let that settle in for a moment, all that information that we've been hearing. We're, um, if you just tuned in, as I said, you're listening to WERU Community Radio. This is the Healthy Options Program. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're speaking with Dr. Beatrice Antier about ticks and tick-borne disease and how we are still, every season of the year, needing to uh, be mindful that they do um do exist and they are around here wow so where do we get good information i mean we're going to put some things on the uh, website and and when we archive all of this for sure but um what where is it uh, sometimes the up-to-date information and some of the things we're talking about is not uh is not always available where where would you uh do it oh um and and before we do that i do have a very quick idea uh, uh, that a question that has uh, been many people have wanted to know. What about bird feeders? Oh. And we're you know in the winter sometimes we take them off in the summer if we're thinking about ticks because you know the birds have more food they have more you know plants and whatever. Um, but now in the winter a lot of people put them back up to really help out the birds that are here. What do we know about that from October through April and May? Well, you know, that's a question for, uh, I can't remember his first name, Mr. Hickok, I think, overall, you know, the birder, the big bird guy. Um, but but my big bird sources tell me that um, the birds will do fine whether I feed them or not, just so as you know. But if you want to feed birds, um, there's some data to support um, feeding October through April is entirely safe. Because the um, adult ticks do not parasitize birds, but nymphal ticks do. So the, the birds migrating south or, or stopping here um, are really not bringing ticks into your yard. Now, they still attract rodents, but they're not bringing ticks. So what I encourage folks to do is try to feed birds away from the active areas of your yard whether you feed year-round or don't feed year-round. You know, um, they're going to make it with or without us, but we the hope. Connecticut Ag Station says you can safely feed regarding ticks from October through April. And, I, you know, this is Maine, so maybe it's September through May because our season's longer. I, I'm trying to understand this. So, because I know people who do bird banding, when you they get the, bir- the birds, they see ticks. Feeding, and then they're actually trained not to take the ticks off. It's a very interesting really? thing. From unless that's changed, that was that may uh-huh. be that may be older information. But you're saying that that's not the case. In... Well, it's just that the risky form of the tick, um, you know, in those months would be the the active tick is going to be the adult, and the adult is unlikely to parasitize the birds. I so it's the nymphal tick that's more likely to parasitize birds and and the migration south to north at least typically has been more risky for all of us than than the north to south migration. I see. Okay. All right. So, well that's that's good to know. 
So you can't, I mean, you can, you, but, and there may be other reasons why you should be cautious about your bird feeders too. But um, I encourage people, you know, not next door to the swing set, you know, not in the active part of the yard, be mindful of who you're inviting into your yard when you're feeding birds. Be afraid. Be very afraid. No. Well, okay. No. Just mindful. Just mindful. <laughs> yeah. So, so is there? You know, we are going to put all a lot of these things on uh, on, as I said, on the archives, and yeah. uh, you know, people uh, who really want to listen to this on demand, we're doing these uh, on WERU a little bit like a podcast, so you can get the app if you don't have it already, the WERU app, and then they'll be in. Uh, you'll see all of the uh, all of the. Um, programming, uh, current affairs and uh, public affairs programming, and you can listen as you as you will. Uh, so that's that's really good to know. So it'll be there, uh, but if you're out in the world and not listening to this show, uh, it's hard to believe that that would be the case. But um, in fact, if you are, uh, where can people go for information these days? That's, that's accurate, because I know for years there wasn't accurate information. Maybe you could talk about that uh, a little bit. Well, you know, accurate information is actually surprisingly hard to come by. And we often rely on um, CDC for much of our information. Um, I, I think that they do some parts extremely well. And unfortunately, there are areas that um, have been less well done. Are we we talking about the main CDC or? uh, um, I'm I'm talking mostly, I guess, in in that instance about federal CDC, but main CDC often follows route. I think uh, main CDC has a lot of good information, um, particularly their frequently asked questions section. And I'll give you the the link for that Um, because I I know that that information is, is solid because we documented every pretty much every word um, with s- literature support so that we're not just perpetuating misconceptions, which can happen, you know, um, with the best of intentions. Maine also has the Maine tracking network where they try to get up to date um, surveillance data about these diseases. The, the one remark I would make about surveillance case data is that this is not quantitative, truly quantitative data. It's qualitative. We're, we're tracking trends. And in fact, the method of tracking changed this year. And we, uh, and we anticipate that it's going to mean a hugely larger number of cases of Lyme disease reported. Interestingly, um, the number of other vector-borne infections carried by the same tick are also rising. So I think there's truly going to be an increased number and there's going to be um, an increased appearance because of the way in which the cases are being counted now. So stay tuned. We'll see what it all looks like. But it's already shaping up to be a banner year for tick-borne infections. So, so what does that what does that mean? If so if if people are getting treated, they're going to be if you've gone to a your medical doctor or a naturopath or whoever that gets reported um, and then that, or how does it, it get reported? It might. Well, it might. You know, up till now it has been a pure, a passive reporting system. So, if 
your treating person identifies Lyme disease, they submit a case report or or ought to submit a case report to the CDC. The CDC then would have to investigate it and see if it meets the case definition criteria, which are fairly narrow. So for example, the rash of Lyme disease is Lyme disease and that in the past would be counted. Um, that is really manpower demanding. You know, it is intensive need for manpower. And there are so many cases that have to be investigated every year. For every um, case that's reported, they investigate three or four. So, you know, that's mm. a lot of legwork. So there was a, a change made nationally so that what is now going to be a reported case are laboratory cases of mm. Lyme disease. Well, yeah, I think it's going to drive the numbers up, not down, though. You um, do? Are, yeah. are those tests accurate enough? That's, I guess we... we we've... I'm not, I have no idea if they'll be accurate, but there will be more reports. <laughs> because you know? would we say that, I mean, there are people who are sick with Lyme disease and even months in, they still test negative. Yes. And so we're still going to be missing them. We're going to have some that aren't. But remember, this is trends. We are tracking trends and not going for um, yeah, we can't go for true accuracy. When studies have been done that try to accurately assess how many cases there are out there each year, looking at um, insurance records and other methods of gathering that data, the number has been something more like 475,000 cases per year, not 40,000 that ends up reported via CDC. Wow. So, so it's not quantitative, but it gives us an idea of the trends. And the other um, infections will still be uh, tracked in the way they have been being tracked. So we'll have some sort of comparative way to look at that. So so there's some, some good data there. I would encourage um, Lyme.org, Lyme Disease Association.org, um, and we'll, I'll give you these, these sites so you can attach them. But that's generally speaking, I think, uh, good, accurate, open-minded information. And yeah, it, it tends to um, include the nuance that is important in this. You know, um, perhaps, yeah, uh, uh, well, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so really, this is a clinical diagnosis, isn't it? I mean, let's get really get back to what we're what where we're coming full circle here in the last uh, number of minutes, maybe a little bit less than five minutes left. But um, we're yeah. So if you see a tick, uh, how should you remove it? Ah, removing a tick. Uh, best do not annoy it. Don't try to burn it with a match. Don't try to suffocate it with anything you think might suffocate it. You can't suffocate these guys. Um, fine-nosed tweezers, grab as close to the skin as you can, steady, gentle pressure pulling straight up. You'll see that your skin is going to tent a little bit. Don't give up and it will come out. Wash and, you know, disinfect the area. Uh, put the tick in a baggie or some other container so that you can send it off so we can get it identified. 
um, wash your hands and mark it on your calendar that it happened. If there's any evidence that the tick has fed, you should, and I don't mean it needs to be all blown up, but any evidence of feeding makes it a risky bite. Um, contact your healthcare provider, let them know what happened. Um, you can show them your tick. Don't give it away because you might want to send it to be tested. Um, and consider whether you should take antibiotic prophylaxis. Whether you do or don't, it's really important to monitor your health for the next four to six weeks at least. Because even if we treat with a prophylactic antibiotic, you may still get Lyme disease. So you're watching for fever or headache, achiness. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so really be vigilant. Do yeah. your due due diligence and wear your uh, permethrin clothes and uh, do some of those uh good preventative methods that we've been talking about for this whole this whole hour and remember ticks are here all year long so this is the uh, the good reminder that we really needed to do here today and it looks like we are running out of time as usual we can continue on and on but our guest today on Healthy Options has been Dr. Beatrice Santier. Thank you so much once again for being here on the program. It's always good to talk with you no matter what season it is. Yes. <laughs> and you can find links to the show and to other information that was mentioned, as well as our previous interviews with Dr. Santier at the Public Affairs Archives at healthyoptions at weru.org. Thanks to Joel Mann, Amy Brown of WERU for engineering support, to Petra Hall for for production assistance and as always thanks to all of you our WERU listeners and supporters this is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health